Hello everyone and welcome to Timo and Julian Talk Philosophy. Hello Julian, Hello, it's really good to be back. Yes, it's today we will talk about monarchy and monarchism. Uh, I'm Timo Schmitz and I'm here with Julian Mitran. So Julian, if I understand you right, you are the one who uses the anthropological analysis from from our team. So what do you think is monarchy from an anthropological viewpoint? Um, it's quite complex in many ways. Uh, in uh, To say so, how I see monarchies nowadays, they are a type of um, symbol for many nations, uh, usually um, for my empires, uh, and especially uh, states that uh, had colonies around the world. Uh, monarchies pretty much in a sense uh, links uh, the identity of the nation with a type of glorious past that was a little bit more recent, but in also it kind of um, uh, accentuates a type of lien uh, lineage. So basically, a type of continuity in that nation that is symbolized through the succession of monarchs. And this uh, this uh, succession basically kind of um, creates a type of national timeline. Uh, usually in uh, countries where monarchies are still present, they um, see they pretty much see the past as a chronology based on the succession of various uh, monarchs. Uh, you know the culture that various monarchs created in their time because when you have states that had monarchies and especially stable ones usually the tendency is that the monarchy and uh, the monarchy plus let's say the cultural and economical elite that was uh, um, gravitating around it they kind of uh, were the creators of uh, the national culture and the uh, the cultural trends for certain eras. The most, uh, I don't know, uh, the easiest example that we can give is like the Victorian age. Everybody knows the Victorian age. We know it maybe through the lens of Victorian fashion, Victorian architecture, Victorian mannerisms. So pretty much it's not only about the political component that comes with the monarchy, it's a type of cultural continuity and a type of national timeline that was very much based on the succession of uh, monarchs. But we should not underestimate the public because let's take France as an example where there happened to be anti-monarchical uprisings leading to the French Revolution. It's a kind of many events that happen together that we talk, that we call nowadays the French Revolution. And there we see the exact, let's say, opposite. During the time of the French Revolution, there was, there was, uh, there were some years where it was kind of 
that you could be persecuted if you looked like too monarchical elitarian. You know, like if if you if it looked like you are for the king, you were probably executed because they just got rid of the king. So here it was like the exact opposite that anything that linked to the old monarchy was seen as backwarded and had to be abolished. However, I want, I think we should really go like also to the modern, to what, what is important for us today. And it seems that we have two kinds of monarchies today. On the one hand, we have representative monarchies. We find them a lot in Europe, like, yes, you already mentioned the United Kingdom. We find them in the Netherlands. We find them in Scandinavia. We find them in Monaco, in Spain. So there are a lot of countries still in Western Europe, especially, that have a representative monarchy. And then, or also Northern Europe, and then we really do have absolutist states, monarchical states, like um, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, or Brunei, which actually are still, let's say, to a certain degree, where there is not where there is not just a, they do not just have a representative function, but where they also have a certain political power, especially, for example, in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, where they actually still do have to say. Yeah, usually they, countries that uh, you'll find them with the title of sultanate. Yes. So we have to defer between these two kinds of monarchies today between those who are actually democratical countries with a parliament and those countries where we still do have a single person reign or a family reign in, in, in some kind. So how do they differ today? I mean, except that the one are democratically and have liberal values while the others decide themselves what is right and what is wrong and in this way, of course, also uh, produce uh, censorship and I, also, yes, restrict the rights. I think uh, it's a very interesting thing, especially when you put it in our current context, because um, especially when it comes to the situation that we have in Europe, uh, the monarchs, uh, pretty much, they are a type of symbol. They have extremely limited um, um, powers when it comes to legislation and what uh, their involvement in actual political life. Um, usually when we are talking about um, monarchies, um, they, also, uh, they usually come with the idea of a symbol. You know, I really want to accentuate this thing. Um, because uh, the thing is that uh, as we have the majority of the cultural landscapes in, you know, countries that still have monarchies, uh, the, their current culture and uh, the way in which things are run are very much decentralized. So pretty much the royal families and the people that are around them, that gravitate around them, they do not hold a monopole on, let's say, uh, identity, culture, the arts, and so on. I think this is a huge thing uh, that I see as a difference from an anthropological point of view is the fact that unlike in, let's say, the old days, when like the monarchy was pretty much the one that um, 
had a monopoly on intellectual culture and everything that had to do with it. Nowadays, things are more decentralized, especially because we have uh, a very uh, well-developed university system network. A lot of people go there. Like education is not uh, like class-based. You don't access education only or you don't have access to education uh, due to your class. Pretty much education is wide, much more widely available. Plus the uh, press the, uh, and mass media in general. So things, I think they are more fragmented. And if, um, if uh, the royal families would like to have a monopoly on public opinion and culture and stuff like that, I think it will be pretty much impossible to a certain extent. But what do they actually represent today? Um, I think they are much more of, um, as I said, of a type of symbol of continuity because uh, uh, the countries that are monarchies uh, nowadays were usually, and especially in the case of Europe, were usually countries that had, were very influential Either they were regional or global empires, and uh, they pretty much, I think, the royal families are kind of a reminder of how the current state, you know, the current country, kind of is linked to what was in the past, you know, to a past that in many ways, and this is especially the framing that is current in monarchies, the past and especially the colonial past in the case of many yes, Russia, yes. is very like uh, you know sublime very romanticized um, but but wait but but to me they seem like a relic from a long ago time and we all know that the colonial past no matter how much some people romanticize it was a terrible past oh, the well, time I, I totally agree that I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind, and I think this is the worst example, of, you know, it's like the extreme, a King Leopold II and what happened in Congo. Yes, and you know, Congo was his personal property, like it's, the people there were his, per like the, yeah, some it was kind of personal slave. It was not, it didn't even have like the... Um, um, let's say the legal status that you know traditional colonies to say in quotation marks had you know like in what we had colonies in North America and let's say Latin America it wasn't even that I, th I mean I think what happened in Congo was like the um, pinnacle of how toxic and destructive and greed-based colonialism was actually. So the question of course that if they are a relic of a long ago time why would we need them today as a kind of representation because they seemingly represent something which is not let's say worth to be honored if we look into their past and i mean not about every but about almost yeah. every uh monarchy i think it's a thing with owning the past because it's very hard 
for a country that basically built uh, its like uh, you know a historical narrative on how great colonialism was because every country that was a colonial power basically has this syndrome of like being like the uh, the um, one uh, that brought civilization they brought, uh, they basically came and civilized like the savages you know from but we also know that it is ahistorical today i mean we know that there were great kingdoms in africa yes, before the colon exactly. before the colonists came but this and is they like the narrative this is the narrative because if you admit the fact that places like africa let's say um what you had the um, uh, uh states uh, you know the pre-colonial states in the gulf of guinea in africa they were some of them were actually advanced from like uh, uh, technological and um, let's say from the point of view of their spiritual and intellectual culture and they were destroyed by you know people that uh, wanted to basically to control uh, control those lands and to create uh, to transform them into colonies you know because the extraction of resources was the main preoccupation when when it came to colonies so now that we see that the narrative does not fit reality in any way the question is even if this if there are still some people holding up this narrative i mean we are in a time where this is questioned and i think the black lives matter movement showed this too clearly and in this way we can say so if people are aware today that this was just a created narrative but far beyond reality it would be no problem to abolish these old relics or uh you know what i see the problem with this because i'm i also see like colonialism through like a negative uh, perspective but what i see is like two things you can have the owning the past you know thing and you can have it in two ways you can have like owning the past in the way that we are conscious of the bad that was done in our historical past as a nation through colonialism this is the case and we basically want to acknowledge that and to make a type of correction okay but we can have the flip side of that in which we uh we own our past but the past is the past and the present is the present and what was done in the past will remain in the past and we cannot do anything about it the same thing and I think this is a bit of a stretch when it comes to a comparison. I saw, I see the same type of discussions in Eastern Europe when it came to communism. Should we put down, you know, the statues of Lenin? What uh, was it good? Was it bad? I mean, uh, on one hand, you also uh, you always had the argument, oh, uh, you know, with like the negative things, but you, you also had the uh, argument in which. Uh, we said that uh, we need to own our past and also like the negative 
aspects are part of our past. This was an argument actually used in my city when uh, some people wanted to demolish a statue that was from the socialist era because they had argument we need to own our past and we don't uh, need to destroy everything that reminds us of our past. So it's a very tricky question, uh, a very uh, tricky um, thing to actually debate in many ways. But it, yes, but it can, not every place can be compared with another. I mean, for example, here in Germany, it is evident that we chose what you say, the first part, that we are conscious, that we are conscious of our past and that we don't say it was past, so let's go on, but that we are really, it is our past is really an important part of our present consciousness uh, because of how gruesome uh, the Nazis were. So that it is not just something where we can say it happened, but where we have to be sure that it will never happen again. So that's the one. Then we have, of course, other types of government like we had with socialist states, but socialist states, for example, cannot be compared to fascism because we all know that, uh, that the Nazis killed over six million people. So it's not, so it can't be compared yeah, to any always other event. There was like this counter argument. Oh, you know, like communism, like killed also people, but also is it like, a very productive uh, uh, thing to like examine like a political uh, standpoint, an ideology if you like how many people did it kill? Uh, this is also... No, it, it, it's, it's not the question of only examining of how many people it killed, but on how m much freedom the people had. And like in, in, uh, in the Nazi regime, you were immediately killed if you protected a person who fought differently if you fought differently if you just even had your own opinion and also so, you know one thing that really strikes me as a type of similarity because there are overlapping themes and like uh, you know certain cores that are common uh, usually when colonialism started and um, this is like relates a lot to the idea of monarchies and how things were actually justified. Usually when, um, let's say in Africa or in North America, how do you actually ju justify uh, you as a country invading basically another uh, other people's lands and like enslaving them and like after that exploiting all of their resources and those people become either slave or either, I don't know, second class citizens. Basically, it was a similar thing that the Nazis did. There was this idea that the colonizers were genetically and culturally superior to like the people that they came in contact with and the people, the natives from the territory, like the Africans and the Native Americans uh, from uh, North America, they were considered, uh, they were like painted as savages, as genetically inferior. So this was basically a type of mind gymnastics in which you could basically say that, oh, you know, those people, uh, they uh, would not 
ever have the you know the mines and the resources needed to create something productive with that land so, uh, so we come here and we take the resources and we maybe uh, it's more beneficial for them uh, even to be second class citizens in our colonies than to be like free people uh, as they were before we came yes so at first just just to make this clear i'm not saying that everything in socialists society for example in in germany went well but you can see this especially with with germany you cannot compare like the nazi regime with the gdr with with eastern germany i mean the nazis killed so so many people and there was no mass murder in the gdr yeah. of course this does not legitimate automatically what happened in the gdr you know i i mean i don't want i don't want to give the impression that just because one is worse the other is nothing so no and uh, you know a basic difference between how let's say communism you know chose it its victims and like nazism nazism uh, basically chose uh, its victims you know those uh, people that were considered you know uh, in need for extermination on the basis on the basis that they were genetically bad in certain ways uh, on the other hand the communists basically were more against so certain social classes and in order and there were cases um you know when you are in a social class you can let's say make a type of uh, switch to a more inferior status and it will be okay so Basically, they didn't saw people as, um, you know, intrinsically uh, bad or flawed. It was more like the social place that they took in society and how that interacted with how they exploited and had a uh, hierarchy uh, by comparison to other classes. But and they could be educated to good proletarians. Yeah, See, exactly. That was the difference. They you were could not. Be they were not. Yes, they were not intrinsically bad by birth. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's go back to like the thing with the colonies. How do you see this motivation that basically the um, uh, the um, the states basically created in order to justify their presence? Yeah. It's it's difficult because they they had they did not have the awareness of of human rights and that's that's a, that's the first problem they had the the self identity of superiority and we know on on the of the on the first episode that we had on identity that identity is subjective so we have to to understand how it could happen we have to understand the image that they had their identity identity uh, that they had and according to their identity they had the image of hierarchies first within their own society we know this for example that in france during the time of monarchy you had like three 
three uh, social levels, right? There was the first class, the second class, and the third class. And it seems to me that they wanted to adjust this kind of hierarchies outside of their country. So that they said, like, okay, then if there are even ranks in their own society, then there are ranks outside of their own society. And because they themselves fought superior of their own society, the other societies automatically had to be below or underneath their own social class or their own social society, which led to the fact that they developed the idea that the people abroad could be even more exploited than the people they already exploited domestically. Because there already was like classism within the society back home, like in exactly. So it was no surprise that uh, you know when they came in contact with like the natives uh, and they didn't understand anything about like their culture and how they uh, had their you know worldview. You know, like the result was uh, pretty much uh, you could predict it. Exactly. And this goes even further because uh, there was not just until, until Crotius, there was no human rights as such, which means there were not only no human rights for the people and colonies, there were also no human rights. In fact, for the people in your own country, the idea that people in your own country, that they have a basic rights, it happened in like, we can say it happened in Great Britain and France, when people fought for their, let's say, for the right, that no one can touch them, that they do have a protection as human beings. It happened in these two countries very clearly. And already Grotius made clear that within the exchange of countries that there cannot be a superior because he showed that in fact or like I mean I put it now in a very very I put it in a nutshell so I, I, I make it short. He saw that the Westerners acted as savage as they claimed the others to be. So to say they said the others are the primitive ones, but if you looked at the actions of the Westerners, we saw that they acted very savagely towards these people. And so he said like, so he, so he saw like that uh, just because, uh, um, he, he, he saw like uh, just because they say that they are superior, their deeds, do not show any more civilized behavior because of the way they act towards the people they suppress. Okay, so, so basically how um, this colonial past, uh, do you think it is like a huge, you know, no-no um, to say so in, uh, in more colloquial language when it comes to making an argument that, you know, the presence in our current society of monarchies is, you know, in some way justified because if we think so, we have another classification. We have 
countries like the UK, Spain, uh, that uh, um, are currently monarchies and were colonial powers. But we have another type of like monarchies of states like Liechtenstein. They never had colonies. Yes, yes. We have to we have to dif differ between these two countries. But here we have another big problem which leads us to finding any answer today. It is the word cancel culture, a big, big word. And uh, to tell you honestly, uh, it is difficult just just because you cancel something, it does not make the past unhappen. And so, of course, I could say now that we could say we do not cancel the representative monarchy because just because they did something, it abolishing them will not bring all the victims back to life. But on the other hand, we can see that representative monarchies, that they cost a lot of money. They spend a lot of money. Uh, so the whole system that they have there, and normally it is the taxpayer, right, who who pays them and the question is is it still in the is it still in the 21st century should there be an obligation that the taxpayer pays for a representative monarchy which itself did not do good in the past so to say that they can continue their their narrative or their their self-identification, even even if they see themselves partly different today. Of course, there are also some royals who say, like, who who do not, who who do question their ancestors, but they don't question maybe their own rank. They say, okay, we have a past, but we are the future. We are a different generation. Okay, uh, what I see here is the following thing. You made a very good point uh, with, like, you know, the burden, basically, that most monarchies, you know, and their whole apparatus kind of bring on, like, the general, let's say, taxpayer. The thing is, the following, as I see it from somebody that comes from a former socialist country, um... The fact is the, the following, people that usually grow up, you know, in the UK or in the Netherlands, it's so embedded into their national culture and in the way they are raised and in schools and in families that they never kind of get another perspective. Or when you always bring them, you know, the idea that the monarchy is, our, uh, it is like, uh, un, um, it is basically inseparable from Britishness or from, uh, you know, the idea of, uh, of, of from the culture of the Netherlands, you automatically don't question and you don't put uh, yourself in the position of, oh, could we actually be the UK or the Netherlands without our monarchs? I think when you have a thing that is so embedded into your national culture, uh, you just don't question it to begin with, and you don't you don't think of alternatives to you know the current situation. We find like you can find that in Germany any kind 
of remembering people who did crimes is kind of cancelled, like, I mean, in our own history. So, for example, people who served under the Nazi regime, who were not who did not resist. They are literally there. You will not find a street named after them. You will not find any any statue after them. So everything that reminds of them is put away, and you only find it in the history book. And so on the one hand, we we we, uh, we cross them out as part of glorification. We made clear we don't want these people to be glorified. So they are this. But, but on the other hand, we do not forget what happened because we have history and history classes. So there are a lot of museums who shows this. So there is there, there is a consciousness about this topic. So that's that's the one thing. But on the other hand, the terrible thing is there are still enough people here today who are right winged. And right now, we kind of find really some kind of we we had a series of killings of shootings in our country conducted by right-wingers. So it shows that even though we made sure that people who conducted serious crimes are not glorified in our country, their ideology still is present. So you cannot simply, you cannot simply cross them out, even if you cross them out of your national heritage even by showing that there is no, let's say, no heritage you know, anymore. I cannot uh, agree with uh, the idea of erasing something from your national heritage because uh, you know, heritage is everything that is from your past good or bad yes, why, but the way, when but it comes to national identity that is the selection of your heritage. Yes, but, but within this, the heritage we made the standpoint clear, you know. So I mean, it, it's if you, I make an example. If you if you receive something from a person who died, and the, so and you are the one who receives it, you can choose yourself what you keep and what not, right? And we 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 have a kind of let's say legacy, nation national legacy, and we made clear like what we want to keep and what not and basically we did not keep anything from our past like i mean we also had a kind of monarchical past it it it, it existed and yet we st after 1945 we started like from a time zero like we started completely from a new beginning with a completely different system with completely dif different values so we left our past completely behind and we're conscious we're conscious about our past so we were aware that we have this legacy and we were aware that we have to educate our future generations that such a thing will never happen again and in the same way there are maybe other countries but they they don't have they don't have this this point zero in in the same way and for example with other countries i mean it's difficult to say point zero you know the, 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 the point is other countries like latvia or lithuania who also make aware that they felt oppressed during soviet times and that they want to that they want to remind the people that it is part of the legacy but that it shall not be glorified 
they uh you know i mean they they also have a critical critical view on on their past but they did not have but their country was not literally bombed down when they became independent they still yeah. had some something something from the past but the problem with modern monarchies is that they themselves never had this transformation they never they never were like bumped down and had to start completely new which means that they never really start had a point where they could leave behind everything they 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 had and this this is this is maybe the problem that you I said think the that continuity in like the most traditional way they are very anti-reform i mean i don't because they are such a conservative institution to begin with i mean they are not the type of institution that will ever be too open towards like massive change you know as uh, and maybe if though the massive change even happens it won't be like the monarchy in like uh, the sense that we know it. Um, the one what I see is um, the fact that uh, um, things are very different with uh, uh, with the way people see monarchies in like countries in which they still exist and countries in which they kind of um, you know they were abolished decades and decades ago. Uh, I see this case in uh, Romania where, you know, in the between-war period, we were a monarchy, you know, with Greater Romania. And uh, after that, uh, you know, we had uh, the communist um, era. And usually what it is very, like, interesting is that when uh, nowadays uh, there is, like, a segment of the conservative, you know, segment of voters and of society that regards the monarchy from like the between war period, you know, the House of Hohenzollern-Steinmeingen, that they were, you know, formidable, they were great, you know, the first two kings were truly formidable, but the second two kings <laughs> factually were not. And um, to be honest, uh, the monarchy and the way Romania was run and looked in the between war period looked terribly worse than it looked after World War II when it was massively industrialized, you know, infrastructures created and so on. So I think as um, we have this thing in which when an uh, era ends and uh, time passes and you kind of have this situation in which a huge chunk of time is between the point in which that thing was abolished and, you know, the present day, you kind of lose touch with reality of how things were. Especially when the people that actually lived, you know, in the monarchy passed away and you see only things through, like, you know, history books or through, like, national discourse. Things kind of tend to become very romanticized and, like, steered towards, you know, uh very idealized image yes yes that's that's true and i think this leads us to today's summary and i think today you will do the summary so you will tell us what we actually learned today okay i think the first thing that we can point out is that um 
we have different type of monarchies in the world and especially in Europe we can talk about um, current day states that still have like uh, functional to say so monarchies and usually states that were colonial powers as we have the case of Spain and the United Kingdom and also states that are currently monarchies but they never were colonial powers as is the case of like um, Liechtenstein and Monaco so they were not colonial powers another thing is that uh, how we can actually um, come to a middle ground between accepting the past as it is and basically uh, having a continuity or uh, accepting the past as it was in the sense that we need to uh, kind of make corrections to basically to end those institutions that we consider that were like uh, toxic or dysfunctional or they created more I know I don't know bad and they uh, uh, had this thing of going against social progress um, the third thing would be the fact that um, um, in many countries that are current monarchies because the idea of monarchy and the idea of a king of a queen is so embedded into their national culture and basically from like a early age you uh, you know participate in the day of the queen there are national holidays that celebrate various uh, monarchs from that are currently ruling or from the past there is a lot of symbolism and uh, heraldry all across the country that uh, reminds you of the monarchy uh, it's very hard for them like in a very personal way to imagine their country's existence without you know that monarchy because uh, in a way it is very hard to um to see yourself in a way uh, especially when you didn't see uh, you when you were never offered to see any type of alternatives to that you know institution and in many ways in uh, I and I saw this discussion especially in regards to the United Kingdom uh, maybe the more conservative branch of society kind of um, um, forwards this idea that maybe these uh, countries that are monarchies will not be stable anymore if the institution of uh, you know if the institution will be abolished um, this is uh, this is debatable in many ways but um, I think we can say that monarchies uh, today are starting to be more and more put into question and you know their legitimacy and uh, I think maybe the you know we talked about neoliberalism in the fact and the consumer society and that we think that nowadays of everything in terms of how does it benefit us 
personally, you know. Maybe if we take the idea of neoliberalism and we apply it to the monarchy uh, and we kind of analyze it through how much the society actually benefits from its existence and how much the society invests into its uh, uh, existence, maybe sometimes we kind of come to the conclusion that the investment is much more... Uh, it's bigger than what we get out of this deal, if we see it as a deal. So the final, the, the very final question is, we have argued that you cannot compare, for example, Nazism with the Soviet rule, that these are like two completely different historical events and you cannot just compare one with the other. Can you compare monarchy with one of them or do we have to say like monarchy is like a third dimension, like a third historical era, the era of imperialism, of which we can not compare with the other two because the other two were just too distinct and it's it's something that has to be seen alone? Or do you think that we can compare it with one of these two? Um, I think it's a bit complicated because we have the following thing. We have the monarchies in the context of like the traditional empires, you know, in which we usually talk about the pre-national state identity. And we also have the monarchies that we have nowadays, which basically they exist in the framework of national identity. So basically, they, in a weird way, uh, even maybe the ancestors, you know, the founding royal families were of foreign origin, they were naturalized and they pretty much kind of represent the ethos of the dominant ethnicity, or the ethnicity that holds the most economic power and, you know, privilege. So I don't think um, monarchies, uh, especially nowadays, I uh, usually act in the same way as they did when they ruled, you know, the classic type of empire that we uh, kind of, um, you know, were taught in schools, which were pretty much multinational states, multi-ethnic. So, so we can, so here we can say as the very, very last conclusion for today, on the one hand, we had, we have seen that there is a, there was the genocide uh, of of Nazism. There were Stalinist genocides, and there were also genocides of natives, which were conducted under the name of grounds. But okay, we know that Nazism itself there is no good variant because they always exclude someone. They always say that there's someone superior, so they are not good. With communism, it is differently. There were a lot of countries that abused the communist idea, but communism itself is not bad because they want justice and equality, so to say social justice, and justice is something good. And maybe we can say in the end, we have the, with monarchy, it's maybe a bit like with communism. Monarchy itself does not need to be bad. We, as we can see with representative monarchies, they do not necessarily kill people or, or, uh, or enforce something. But there were a lot of gruesome monarchs and they are also part of the history. And we have to be conscious of them 
and just canceling them out of history will not change history. So thank you very much for today's discussion. Um, and don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like, to give us a like. And don't forget to share this episode in social media, to share the link of this episode in social media. So thank you very much. Goodbye.